This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. If you don't see yourself represented or if you don't see a point of view or opinion that you have out in the world, that's not indication that it's not valid or necessary. That's indication that you need to share it. Korsha Wilson is an up-and-coming star in the food world. She is a journalist, storyteller, and an advocate for equity and political change in the industry. From devouring her first cooking magazine at age 10 to learning about the world of food through her mother's love of restaurants, Korsha's destiny was obvious. She writes for a slew of impressive publications, including Eater, The New York Times, Savour, and Bon Appetit, and about a wide range of topics, from the legacy of Chef Patrick Clark to why we care about what celebrities cook. She is also the host of Heritage Radio's A Hungry Society. Coming up, you'll hear why some of Korsh's best and most inclusive restaurant experiences have been in pop-ups. How her grandmothers, one from Virginia and one from St. Thomas, shaped her love and knowledge of food. Why is a young woman of color, diversity means so much to her. And how a web of women whose stories have yet to be told have inspired her. This is Korsha's impressive story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Portia Wilson, it is such a thrill to have you here. I know a lot about you, but we've never met. But your name keeps on coming up at uh, food events. And anyone who wants to know anything about what's happening in the food world right now, all roads seem to lead to you in one way or another. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes. Welcome. Welcome to One Woman Kitchen. And, Korsha, you are a chef, although I don't really know if you consider yourself a chef, but you did go to the Culinary Institute of America, and I definitely want to hear about that experience. But primarily, you are a food writer. You have your own podcast called A Hungry Society, and um, you are a young woman who cares deeply about issues in the food space. Tell me how you got started, because I think in some ways you really do have a kind of a career path that, or a career that Everyone seems to want today. You know, everyone's an obsessed foodie. Yes. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here and to sit with you and chat with you. It's an honor. Um, Yeah, so my career in food is weird in the sense that it's been 20 years in the making. I decided at 10 years old I wanted to be a food writer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Which, I wish people could see. The, did you see the look on my face <laughs> yes. when you said that? Because you are <laughs> so young. most people have. <laughs> um, yeah, I went to a Borders bookstore with my mother. I remember this day completely clearly. Um, and we went. It was a weekly date that we had, like a ritual. And we went to Borders. And I was walking through the magazine aisle. And I came across the food section and saw a Savoir magazine. And I just fell in love with it. And I read it cover to cover. <laughs> 
And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I knew I loved food. Uh, my mom would take me to little mom and pop restaurants. Um, and where was that, Corsia? Where did you uh, in grow Maryland. Up? In Maryland. Okay. Yeah, so outside of D.C., first in Adelphi, Silver Spring area, and then in Waldorf, which is south of D.C. Um, but there's like a great, great diverse amount of restaurants there. And my mom would take me around to try different food. Mm. And I loved it so much. Um, and that was a mother-daughter kind of little ritual? Yes. Wonderful. Um, and it became like just kind of a way for me to like see the world um, through food. So it was just kind of an obsession of mine. And then once I saw that magazine, I was like, wait, you can actually write about food and about other countries and about other restaurants. Like, mm. this is a thing. I didn't even know it was a thing. <laughs> and so I told my mom, I want to be a food writer. And she was like, I don't know what that is, but okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll figure this out together. Um, and so then I went to uh, vocational school in high school uh, for culinary arts. And then I went to the Culinary Institute of America and then journalism school. After so that. you were not kidding around. Yeah, I decided. And again, I don't know where this came from. But I was like, if I'm going to write about food, I need to know how to cook. I need to be a very good cook. And you don't need to do that to be a food writer. Right. But don't you feel so much more enriched? Absolutely. And, um... I'm very glad I did it. But um, yeah, I don't know why I decided I had to be like, you know, I had to have a degree in culinary arts and then a degree in journalism. But I'm really glad I, I did that. And yet, don't you think you might suggest that to a younger you mm -hmm. um, to really be a good food writer and to pay attention and be paid attention to? It is so worthwhile Absolutely. to have this kind of background. And also to have worked in restaurants. Um, so I did that while I was in Boston um, for journalism school. And it has helped me out so much because it's one thing to be in class learning, you know, how to chop and saute and brunoise and all that. But it's another thing to actually be in a restaurant environment doing it. On the hotline yeah, with which other I was not good at. people. <laughs> <laughs> but did they put you on the hotline right away? Usually you start in Garde Manger or apps or... So I like, I couldn't um, maintain a like fine dining or traditional restaurant back of the house job. So I worked at this like little cafe that was near Harvard Square and what was the name? Darwin's Cafe. Mm. Um, and it was, I was like the egg sandwich cook. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, that <laughs> takes some talent. <laughs> it was, you know, and I had to do like soups and salads and like salads for the cold case. And it was fine. But um, I eventually ended up moving into front of the house in fine dining restaurants in Boston. And that's when I really like fell in love with working in restaurants. Oh, wonderful. And what were some of the names of those restaurants? Because there were a lot of women, great women chefs in Boston. Yeah, I actually, I um, worked for a male-led um, restaurant group up there. Uh, one of the restaurants was Cleo. Mm -hmm. um, oh, sure. Which isn't there anymore. Right. But, that was um, a very important restaurant. Yeah. yeah, it was super fine dining. And I actually got the job because... Um, You're smart and beautiful. <laughs> because I had the culinary arts degree and I was a hostess. Um, and they would literally just hand me the phone and ask me to pronounce things on the menu because the ah, other hostesses couldn't. <laughs> interesting. So that's how I got the job. Um, but yeah, I, I don't regret it at all. It was like great, great learning experience. And do you have any idea when you were 10 years old what it was about Savour magazine, right, S-A-V-E-U-R, mm -hmm. as opposed to Bon Appetit or Gourmet or, uh, you know, Teen Vogue? Right. <laughs> what, do, you, do you remember what, actually what the cover was or what it was that attracted you? I don't remember what the cover you? was, mm. 
And I actually, I should ask my mom if she still has the issue because I. You made her buy it. it. We bought it, yeah. Um, Oh, that's right. You said you read it cover to cover. And I just remember there being people as well. Mm -hmm. It was food and people. It wasn't one or the other. Isn't it great when they go together? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, you know, very much what I do now. It always starts with a person or people or me telling a story about myself and dining or food. Mm. It never is just about the actual, like, dish or drink or whatever. It's always connected to the story. Exactly. Right. And without food, there can be no stories. Exactly. So, Korsha, you graduated from the Culinary Institute. Was that a positive experience for you? It was. Mm -hmm. It was. Were there a lot of women in your class? No. (laughs) Ah, interesting. No. um, It, there were women in the baking and pastry arts Always. Isn't that funny? Yeah. um, (laughs) We can talk about why. (laughs) On the culinary arts side, there, there weren't that many women. And I remember even like male classmates saying very sexist stuff and, you know, the atmosphere being very um, sexist. And, you know, like an example is I remember a a male student saying, you know, women only go to culinary school so they can learn how to cook for their husbands. Um, Whoa. Yeah. You know, it's such an old mindset. Yeah. And you're young. And this happened in the last 2005, 2006. I'm really sorry to hear that because um, Sarah Moulton was one of our uh, guests. And of course, she's been around for a long time. But when she went to the Culinary Institute, again, there weren't that many women. But she was sharing the story of this European male dominated sexism. Um, But that was. 30, 40 years ago, and I'm just so sorry to hear that it still exists. Yeah. um, I mean, I don't – maybe now it's a bit different, but then it was – I mean, you had a lot of um, older men in the the class as well. You know, it was people who had worked in restaurants and wanted to get a degree or, you know, had worked in a completely different career field, and, you know, they were transitioning into another career in, in culinary arts. So, you know, it was just like a, a very diverse, like kind of um, diverse in, in age and in uh, geography mm-hmm. in those mm-hmm. terms um, sort of class that was really fun to like be a part of for me because it was totally different than Maryland. <laughs> um, but, you know, there were these sort of mindsets that you encountered and they were, you know, sometimes sexist. Okay, but you found a way to uh, roll with them, right? Mm-hmm. And you enjoyed the experience. It was mm-hmm. very positive. Overall, you yes. a lot. I was thinking, but you're right, too. That was 15 years ago, way before the Me Too sensibility. And I really do believe that year by year, we're going to get better at this. I hope um, so. Yes, I, <laughs> I hope so, too. So I'm thinking in 2020, what would a young girl say to the guy who said, oh, Women just want to come here to cook for their husbands. So a cool response would be is, ha-ha, I'm not getting married. <laughs> right. Like said, or what, whatever. But yeah. I think it would the response would be, would be different today. Yeah. Do you remember which part of um, the Culinary Institute experience that you like, front of the house, back, the hotline, because you said you weren't so good at that, yeah, or pastry, because you are a woman? <laughs> um, which, which did you excel at or really love? Um, I mean, I would say I excelled at some of the like foundational courses. Mm. Um, I really, really loved those classes and like jumping into, okay, here's a mother sauce. Here's how you make a proper demi glace. Here's how you cut 
uh, uh, Brunoir, Chiffonade, and I kind of really, really loved learning those basics. Yes. Um, at CIA, they also have you do, you know, writing, which was always my passion and strong suit. Um, so I actually did that. Like, I love those classes. And I also, like, did tutoring on the weekends for other students. Um, so, yeah, I would say those were my favorite parts. It sounds very positive. Wonderful. Okay, so you graduated. And, you know, many people listening to the show are young women who really do want to have your life, Korsha. So can you tell us what you did and what guided you? Um, again, it sounds like this was so such an internal experience that, that this was something really born from your own love and interest at such a young age. So did you have role models? Did anyone help you? Uh, what was your first um, role models? Job. I mean, my first job out of culinary school was like the summer in between graduating from culinary school and going to journalism school. Um, it was just working in the restaurant I had done my internship at, mm -hmm. which was required to graduate from the Culinary Institute of America. Um, so it was in D.C. So I was, you know, staying at home in Maryland and commuting, <laughs> which wasn't fun. But um, yeah, after after that, I moved to Boston and started going to journalism school and working at that cafe, um, which was it on Brattle Street by any chance? No, it was on Cambridge Street. Oh, okay. There is um, another one. So there's two locations of Darwin's. I think there is one on Brattle behind the school a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I went to school there. And I think oh. I worked at a restaurant that is now called The Harvest. And then there was a place called The uh, the Window Shop. And it was like a cafe and they had Viennese pastries. And But this was in the mid-1970s, so I'm going way back. But it sounds like it could be the same, same place. So you worked there mm -hmm. and... When you went to journalism school, did they specifically talk about being a food writer? No. No. Definitely not. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, it was very, um, very news focused. Like the assumption was that you're going to end up working in the newsroom. Um, at that point, uh, they were also cautioning us that newsrooms were having a really hard time. Um I don't think we quite knew what it would look like, you know, mm -hmm. being in 2020 now and looking back, like, you know, it was kind of like, oh, you know, the Internet and you have to learn how to make a Web page. But we didn't talk about like ad revenue and <laughs> exactly <laughs> video and, you know, all these things that would ultimately end up shaping journalism as it is now. But it was still it was a great experience. And I actually like I think I had a year year and a half left and I ended up not finishing because I thought I was going to work in restaurants for the rest of my life. Like by this point I was hostessing but had become a manager uh -huh. and I was like, I just love this. And I, you just love that too. Mm -hmm. So you were at a little bit of a crossroads in terms of really which was going to be the prominent, predominant one in your life. Yeah. I really thought like, okay, restaurant managing is, this is it for me and this is what I want to do. Um, but I missed food writing. I'd say it was like two years of that. And then I was like, okay, I want to write still. <laughs> so I need to figure that out. So you became a very important writer for Eater. And was that early on or did that come a little bit later? Um, that came later. Mm -hmm. So, so what, was your, what were some of your first writing gig gigs? Oh, my goodness. My first writing gigs were actually free. 
I, while I was managing at a restaurant in Boston, I was sending out my stories to anyone who would publish them, just like fully written, uh, not well written, <laughs> but they were fully written. Um, and I would just send them out and I would send them to uh, the free alt weeklies up there. Mm -hmm. And so my first bylines were actually the weekly dig in Boston. And, you know, they weren't paying so, me anything. But that was great. Yeah. Right? Great exposure. So mm -hmm. I would, you know, go and have like uh, one of the first pieces I wrote was about salt cod. Which, about salt cod? Yes. Um, so, you know, I I love salted cod in, in any form. And I realized like, you know, the Portuguese eat it, the French eat it, in the Caribbean you eat it. Um, cod is very important in New England. Like, so I wrote a story about how it's an old world ingredient that chefs are kind of remixing and from all walks of life and cultures are remixing and putting on their menus. So that was my first ever I can't story. wait to read it. I don't know if you can. I think they took it down. <laughs> but maybe you can send it to me. Yeah. Maybe Did you write it by it. hand or is it in your computer? <laughs> it, it might be like there might be a PDF or something somewhere. But uh, it was my first published anything and I was so happy. What a thrill. Yeah. Some, you should actually have framed that. That's very special. And then you continue. So you and that's how that works a little bit. You have this little bit of a catch 22, right? You have to get published in order for people to pay attention. Yeah. So my first um, paid piece wasn't until months later, you know, of consistently writing for the Weekly Dig and submitting stories. Uh, and it was for Boston Magazine. Cool. Yeah. And what was that story? <laughs> it was about um, this server in Chinatown. Her name is Debbie. And um, every this ends up kind of guiding me later. But um, there's this Chinese restaurant I love to go to called Peach Farm. And they're open till three in the morning and all the chefs go there, all the restaurant workers. In Boston? In Boston. Mm -hmm. um, and it's delicious, delicious, like seafood and, you know, uh, typical kind of Chinese-American dishes. And there's a server named Debbie who takes care of everybody and remembers you if you came in once or ten times, remembers your order, mm. remembers where you work, like <laughs> amazing. But every story I found online was about the chefs that would visit. And never about her. Mm. And so I wrote um, a profile of her and, you know, where she's from and how many days a week she works and just a quick interview with her. Oh, that must have been wonderful. It good, was. Good it's still you. one of my favorites. <laughs> good for you for really seeing her. This, I mean, girl, this girl who sees everyone else so well. So I mean, she had taken beautiful. such good care of me so many mm. times. Um, and, you know, my, my husband then boyfriend we met working in a restaurant we would eat there after work all the time and you know she took such great care of us it, it only seemed right to like highlight her and her work so this is another benefit of being in the restaurant business you get to meet your potential spouse. yes it's funny how that happens <laughs> it <lot>. sometimes happens <laughs> right what did you learn from your great management training that that you love so much how did it influence your your writing definitely empathy um, I would say I have a sense of empathy that I didn't have before working in restaurants because what I loved about front of the house work that I didn't love so much about back of the house is that you get to interact with people at the table and are they there for an anniversary or birthday? Is their spouse meeting their parent-in-law? You know, like <laughs> every table needs something different. So you kind of have to figure that out and try to create like – the best meal possible for them for whatever mm -hmm. circumstance is bringing them to the restaurant. So 
even with writing, it's like, okay, what makes this chef unique, this restaurant, this experience? Like, what is, what's actually the story here? It's kind of the same thing. So beautiful. So interesting. So Boston Globe, obviously you came to New York at some point. So what, what, like, what happened? Oh, what brought me here? Yes. Uh, My husband got a job here. (laughs) Yeah. Also in the rest, still in restaurants? Still in restaurants. He works in wine. Um, and so he got a job uh, here, and I was like, "That's oh. my first real love, by the way." Yeah, wine. <laughs> I, yes. I think it's such a fascinating field of study. Um, and so I was like, you know, I can work from anywhere. Um, at this point, I was freelancing full time, so I was like, "Okay, let's let's move." And it's worked out. And, <laughs> and that's when I started writing for Eater. Is when I moved. It's when you came to New York, so you started writing for Eater. So Eater really has become. The most important kind of, um, I don't even know what to call it. I was was going to say tabloid, which, of course, is not the right name, except they are so on top of the news. It almost has that kind of aspect quality to it. But I know my husband, it's the first thing he looks at when he wakes up in the morning (laughs) to see what's happening in the food world, right, in New York and elsewhere because they're national now. So did they give you a particular beat? No. Or were you also doing profile um, stories? I've been very lucky with them in that – they kind of let me write what's uh, kind of annoying me at the time or making me angry or, you know, they're very, um, they're, they're very wonderful in the way that they want kind of voicey opinion or um, reported or, you know, type of pieces like they're, they're pretty great to write for. So, Korsha, I'm so glad you said that. It's a wonderful uh, opportunity for me to tell you why I really wanted to have you on, because I know that. And I know you have uh, strong opinions, and I actually want to hear what's on your mind. So when we come back, we'll do a deep dive. Okay. <laughs> the gate to the garden is reached by a road Here's a cooking tip to share. This from my guest, Korsha Wilson. I would say experiment in the kitchen. Um, I think some of the best cooks I know uh, are not afraid to not follow a recipe. Like, it's okay to, you know, if you need to follow a recipe, that's great. But the I feel like the goal of any home cook should be to see the ingredients and kind of be able to freestyle it. From Korsha's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. So, Korsha, I am really interested to know you're a millennial, you're a beautiful woman and a woman of color, and I want to know what's on your mind these days. Mm. Um, I think some of the things I I started to notice towards, like, the end of working in restaurants was – and something that still takes up a lot of my brain space is um, equity in restaurants – you know, who gets to be a manager, who gets to be the chef, um, and also who gets to own the restaurant. Um, I think we have a long way to go on those fronts in terms of, you know, having women and people of color and specifically black people running restaurants and being in leadership positions or even having, you know, clear paths to leadership in restaurants. Um, So that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think there's some really great work being done, but I think there's still a a big gap that needs to be addressed. So in order to solve problems, we have to identify them first, right? Which is what I think you are 
doing with your work and how you're becoming known is that you are seeing the inequities in the food world. Uh, I know that personally, I'm always so surprised, and I really wish it was different. And I'm wondering, too, if this is a wish of yours and if you think it's possible. Restaurants, I'll talk about New York for the most part, uh, are not integrated. Where is everybody? Absolutely. Right? I mean, and I don't, I've never had this conversation with anyone. What is that about? Is it, um, are restaurants inadvertently saying some people are welcome and some aren't? Are some restaurants just known for catering to certain groups of people? I I really, what do you think? I think it's, um, yeah, so this is something I think about a lot um, because, you know, no restaurant, there's not wood nearby, or so I would knock on wood that hopefully this isn't happening anywhere. But no restaurant, you know, says, you know, no people of color are welcome. Like, that doesn't happen. But still, even in Manhattan, um, on a Friday or Saturday night, in some of the best, like, fine dining restaurants, you won't see any people of color. Um, and it's it's something that just I don't quite understand. Um, but there is kind of this, like unspoken you are welcome here or you're not and it comes through in like all of the choices that a restaurant will make so um from music to ambiance to um even even inspiration um Mm. so i wrote a piece for eater about going to the grill which is uh, modeled after like a 1950s dining experience. Is which, the grill the one where the Four Seasons was? Yes. Okay. Um, you know, it was very historic, like landmark sort of restaurant in Manhattan in um, like upper Midtown. And I was there on a Saturday night and it's like, actually, I don't feel comfortable eating in like mm. the 1950s. <laughs> like that's not <laughs> me as a black woman. Like I don't want to go back to the 1950s. Like that's not an inspirational time for me. Um, but wow. it was lauded by like every newspaper and magazine. It's like the best New York restaurant. Like this is the return of New York dining. And it's like return for whom? Like who is comfortable in this atmosphere? Because it's not everybody. Oh, Korsha, that's so interesting. First of all, The Four Seasons um, was actually created by the man I used to work for, Joe Baum, who was considered, you know, the legend of the last century in in restaurants. And, um, you know, I did go to the grill, kind of the new iteration of it and uh, not so comfortable there either. So, but I think we're talking about different reasons. Um, but it's very painful to hear you have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, maybe we can talk some more about what to do about it and make it so, so conscious. And it never occurred to me until you said this too, that there's so many cues that are given inadvertently maybe to say that you are or not um, welcome here. Some of it has to do with the price point. I mean, fine dining can be very, very expensive. So it's going to really exclude a lot of people. Uh, but then again, we get to choose where we are comfortable and where we want to go. And I do wish, however, that we were much, much more integrated society, especially when Absolutely. it comes to food and cooking and sharing and eating at you know, the, the table together. There's nothing more important than that, I think. Absolutely. Um, are, are there some restaurants that you see this happening that you really embrace and well one of the restaurants i love so much actually closed it's called the henry 
Um, and it was uh, Chef J.J. Johnson who did uh, like kind of pan-African food. And you saw all kinds of people in that dining room. Um, but again, it was like, you know, the music and the atmosphere. And it was just kind of a party atmosphere. And it felt very like homey and comfortable. Um, He's got a great reputation. I've had his food. Yeah, yeah. his food is delicious. Um I would say, honestly, um, I was actually talking to someone about this. Like, some of the best experiences I've had lately have been at, like, pop-ups. Mm. Um, chefs, like, I'm not going to go for the traditional brick-and-mortar type of thing. I'm going to you know, rent out a museum space or invite people to my apartment or um, pop up in someone else's restaurant for I am a night. so happy to hear you say this because – think about it. and you're saying that these are much more kind of integrated much more, yeah okay so who's who's starting these pop-ups younger people who really get it who who this isn't even i mean right they're so right. inclusive and, yeah i mean they live in a diverse inclusive world and this is who they want to hang out with and i think I'm like really happy. just <laughs> dining right now i think people want that more kind of homey experience right now. Yes. Um, they want, they don't just want to have a plate of food. They want a story behind it. Mm. They want to know who made it. Um, they want to know why this dish is special to them. Diners and pop-ups right now go hand in hand because it's kind of, and for chefs it works too because they have a bit more control and flexibility and um, you can have a whole career now just doing pop-ups. Um, it's a really beautiful thing that's happening right now. And you have made the choice to really be the integrator in a way because you represent someone who has so much skill and knowledge in the restaurant industry as in, in management. And now are also you have the power of the most powerful tool of all, which is not a chef's knife. It's a pen. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I hope so. <laughs> um, I'm so curious. First of all, your mother sounds absolutely wonderful. Tell me about your childhood kitchen. Who's who's there? What are uh, you eating mom. and smelling? What's happening in your kitchen? My mom. Um, it definitely. It. Oh, what does it smell like? I. It depends on the week. Um, just like we like to go out to eat, she likes to cook different stuff. Cool. Um, <laughs> so my favorite meal when I was growing up, like very young, was uh, she would make these like spare ribs and like cream corn and green beans like you know i want that vegetables out of a can and like the spare ribs were like done in the oven like mm -hmm. jarred barbecue sauce but i loved it um it was my favorite thing and she would do mashed potatoes from scratch which i also loved um beanies and weenies uh also uh tuna balls <laughs> i don't know that <laughs> which is it's canned tuna uh -huh. mixed with a uh, a little bit of mayo some egg uh, salt, pepper, probably some seasoned salt too, and then deep fried. So breadcrumbs? Mm -mm. Just straight up, just kind of the tuna. So it's like a little round fish yeah, patty. Exactly. Kind of like a salmon great. cake or something. Yeah. Um, and actually like a few years ago, I said to my mom, why don't you make those anymore? She was like, of course, we were broke. <laughs> like Because we were, what? We were broke then. Ah. So she would make them all the time. But I was little and I was like, these are deep fried 
they're delicious. Like, I just, I want to eat these all the time. Uh, but she was like, a, a can of tuna was like a quarter. So I could mm. get two of those and we could. Maybe at your next dinner party, Portia, that's what you'll be serving with. And you'll at have my your. my pop up, I would have. Yes, like, what would you have? Lux <laughs> tuna balls. <laughs> tuna balls. Gotta have tuna balls. It's gonna be the rage. Right. I have to figure out what wine to serve with that. I don't know. Oh, definitely. Ask champagne. your husband. Oh, champagne. Definitely champagne. <laughs> okay. Going high-low. <laughs> something something bubbly. That sounds fantastic. That really works. Tell me about your kind of ethnic background, because you mentioned something about Caribbean cooking before, and, and is are there other countries in your, in your past or your family, or did people live other places? Um, so my mom's side of the family is from the Virgin Islands, mm-hmm. uh, St. Thomas in particular, um, and my dad's side of the family is from Virginia. So, um, you know, in getting ready for this conversation, I was thinking about my two grandmothers yes. and the wildly different, like, foods that kind of represent both of them. Because my dad's mom would do fried chicken, you know, in Crisco and, like, mac and cheese and greens and chitlins and just southern food. And this was the one from Virginia. Mm-hmm. And what was her name? Her name was Hildria. Hildria. Yes. Okay. Uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia in particular. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've actually written about uh, fried whiting and like fish fries in the mm-hmm. backyard in the summers. Nice. Um, Starting so, to feel a little jealous. I didn't right. really grow up this way. <laughs> and then my mom's mom, uh, my grandmother, Ellery, Ellery. Okay. Um, grew up in the Virgin Islands mm-hmm. and doesn't, um, she's still alive and doesn't like to cook, actually. Never did? No, she did. Okay. But gradually, um, but was very good at it. Um, whenever she would cook, it was so delicious, but she just hated doing it. Mm. Um, which, fair, she had six children, so I guess I'd be tired of cooking, too. Um, but family gatherings in St. Thomas are really special to me because it was, uh, you know, fried fish again, uh, Johnny Cakes, which are, like, fried dough, pretty much, mm-hmm. that you sop up, like, sauce and... All sorts of stuff with um, spicy pickled vegetables on fish and rice mm. and beans and vegetables. So it feels and, a little lustier mm-hmm. and a little spicier mm-hmm. than than the other grandma. Yes. So, yeah, yeah it was, um, yeah, very good memories of, like, eating as a family on both sides. So I'm really envisioning your pop-up, <laughs> and, and you're going to be serving more than just uh, tuna balls. Right. We'll start with the tuna balls and then move to Virginia and the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, it sounds wonderful. Uh, who are some of the people in the food world, writers, who have really inspired you? Oh, my goodness. Who do you sit up and read all night long? <laughs> there are so many. Um, writers that really inspire me are, like, people who also have that, like, people-first approach to things. Um, they're not about listing, you know, top 10 burger, even though there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the top 10 burger list because we should all know where the good burgers are. But <laughs> there's always a deeper story with food and with the dish. So I would say people like Tejal Rao, um, who's the New York Times first West Coast food critic. Solejo, um, who is in San Francisco as the food critic. Uh, Therese Nelson who is just, if you want to know anything about black foodways in this country, she is the person to talk to. Absolutely brilliant. Um, 
Are, Where is she based, Korsha? She's based here in New York. Okay, you're going to introduce us. Yes, Thank she you. actually lives in Harlem. Great. Um, she grew up in New Jersey, and she's just absolutely wonderful and a brilliant writer as well. Um, other writers, uh, my friend Omar Tate, who's actually a chef, but also writes and draws and writes poetry. Okay, Jack now you're talking trades. my language because I see them all coming together. I do. I do. I yes. Do. He hosts uh, these beautiful pop-up dinners called Honeysuckle, mm. where he actually like cooks through his upbringing in Philadelphia, traced it to South Carolina and back up, um, and cooks through that and actually writes poems for each course and draws. <laughs> like each, each plate has oh like gosh. a little booklet. Like he's so super talented and a great writer. Um Oh my goodness, there's so many people. Uh, Mayuk Sen is a brilliant writer here in New York um, who's like, oh, he's going to, if he hears this, he's going to kill me. Um, he's tw- maybe 25 uh-huh. and has already won a Beard Award. For his writing? Yes. and uh, Oh, I know who that is. It <laughs> has a book deal and is just like a, a wonderkind um, and absolutely brilliant. Um, who so else? you're hanging out and reading some really great people. There's so it's oh, really important. So many more. This almost you know now is starting to feel oh like another decade in another country where great writers would maybe even in Paris right where people care so much about food and writing mm-hmm. and literature and sharing and art and and poetry and all of these things kind of lived together back then. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, two you're more reinventing people. it. Go ahead, uh, Aaron Hutchinson, who is a uh, blogger and a writer um, who focuses on black foodways as well via Chicago, where he's from, and Eleanor Park, who's at the Wall Street Journal. I, I feel like other people are going to pop into my head, too. Oh, they probably will. So call me in the middle of the night. And oh, I'll... and Ruby Tando, who's in London, who writes beautiful like memoir-type essays about um, eating and drinking and uh, body politics. And uh, yeah, those would be my favorites. What an an inspired list. It's all over the place. <laughs> so do you feel this is an exciting time for you to have chosen this career path? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me both parts. The yes so part and the no part. The yes part, I would say, because there is such an interest in food right now. And um, it is like this art form that people are kind of treating like music or like you said, Um but in in some ways, no, because it's uh, a lot of the publications are kind of dying out. Um, a lot of kind of the traditional venues are leaving, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. Um, but it is kind of hard to focus on food writing. Like I, I someone told me the other day that I'm one of the few people they know that freelances full-time oh wow because most people do it on the side of something else or have right. a full-time job and freelance like occasionally but um yeah i would say that's kind of the downside is it's it's hard to make a living in like new york city just freelancing yes so what would um like a real dream for you be for 2020 since we're just starting out with the beautiful new year um well, we know about your pop-up restaurant with the 
fish ball, oh, tuna balls. <laughs> that may be 2030. Oh, <laughs> oh, we have to wait 10 years? Uh, what about, do you think about a book? Do you, could you imagine doing a book of these beautiful profiles? Um, Maybe. I've started mm-hmm. to think about the different ways in which I can explore these stories. Um, so my podcast has been a really fun way to do that yes. and talk to people and have conversations. Um, I've also thought about a book. Yeah, I don't know. Well, well, well see. the name of your podcast, of course, would be an amazing book as well, A Hungry Society. So let's get a little bit more political now. What Absolutely. are you angry about? What's really pissing you off? Oh, um, the lack of capital given to women chefs and, and black chefs to open up their own spaces. Um, the kind of retreading of food will fix everything sort of motto that food media tends to fall into because food won't fix everything. Um, and it's okay to make food complicated. White male chefs not speaking up or standing up when they see injustices happen. Um, goodness. The proposed wine tariffs that might shake up the wine. <laughs> I'm with you on that. The wine. I mean, I could go on. Yes. <laughs> Things are, I feel like, very intense right now. Um, or maybe they always were, and but it feels like uh, a lot of things are converging at once. I think the exciting part about all of this is that the spotlight is now really on it, mm-hmm. and we're really ready to hear what needs to be said. So, Korsha, thank you so much for that. And when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about um, advice you would give to the younger you. We talked about your legacy recipe, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about another. And what's most meaningful to you right now? If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter, Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Korsha, so usually we talk about the legacy recipe in um, this part of the show, but I believe there's not a lot more to say about tuna balls. Right. (laughs) They're important to you. Pickled scotch bonnets in there. Oh. Just for some heat. And some acid, but that's about it. Maybe some herbs too, but that's about it. Oh, this that's sounds great. Difference. And the fact that they hold together when they're deep frying, I'm still thinking a little bit of panko or breadcrumbs around it, but I don't know. Yes, I feel like that's <laughs> how it should be updated. So okay, it's you a want little to update more structurally it. sound. <laughs> still tasty. With a though. little bit of uh, like a, a beurre blanc with some freshly snipped chives or yeah, something. That okay. sounds good. <laughs> so uh yes, advice for a younger self or to many of the women who would be listening to the show. Yes, I would say um for me, if you don't see yourself represented or if you don't see a point of view or opinion that you have out in the world, that's not indication that it's not valid or necessary. That's indication that you need to share it. Um For me, any of the stories that have been the most successful, not numbers-wise or or views-wise, but the stories that have been the most satisfying to me are the ones that I've pursued because I haven't seen them. And I I want to tell those stories. Um, And does one come to mind most specifically? Yeah. So I would say uh, I wrote a profile for Food and Wine um, last year about Patrick Clark. 
and he's a big uh, hero and inspiration for me. And I just, I was so upset that I would talk to other food writers and they had no idea who he was. Um, and, you know, black chefs knew him and held him in such high esteem and, you know, would talk about him. Like whenever I get together with black culinarians, Patrick Clark comes up because he's like, you know, an icon. Um, but my like white counterparts had no idea who he was. So I wanted to put his story on the radar of people today, of writers today, chefs today. Kosha, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is truly the very first piece of yours that I read. Oh, my goodness. And I want you to know that um, I knew Patrick very well. And there's a picture of Patrick and me in the dining room of New York City Tech in Brooklyn. And your generation might not know him because he died too young and mm -hmm. a while ago. But I just want you to know that my generation knows him really well and respects him tremendously. But it was a wonderful piece for you to write. Thank you so yeah. much. So tell me about some of your heroes. Yeah, so I was thinking about, um, I was trying to think of one woman who mm. kind of summarizes or speaks to all the different parts of what I care about. And I couldn't think of one. I think there's like a web and network of women. I like that, a web that, of women. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> that have like inspired me um, since I was little to now. Um, and I think, oh my goodness, like Edna Lewis, for sure. Um, like having the courage to like set out on your own and cook simple dishes and like, uh, just Edna Lewis is inspiring. Um, the writers I mentioned before, um, are so inspiring to me. And then I think as a black woman, there are so many other black women that I will never kind of know the story of. And I run into those kinds of nameless women a lot in my work, mm. you know, um, trying to like unearth a little bit of knowledge or, or history of these women is always kind of tough and emotionally taxing, but um, trying to look at it from a place of like gratitude and like, you know, the things that black women have done in this country has been like very beautiful and, and wonderful, but it is like frustrating to know that, I may not or we may not know the full extent or the names of these women. Um, so I would include them on that list as well of like heroes and icons and the women we do not yet know. The women we do not yet know. Yes, I like that. And Korsha, I really believe that this is your work to do. And this is maybe what's ahead of you. It's so beautiful. And the New York Times as well has jumped on doing these uh, obituaries now, yes. decades and decades later, of women that were missed. The yes. women that we did not yet know. There's so many. Um, Clancy uh, wrote this gorgeous piece for that section about Georgia, Mello uh, Georgia Gilmore, um, who ran the club from nowhere. Um, yeah, there's just so many women. And, like, sometimes I get a little depressed thinking about how many women there are. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, well, actually, that's a great opportunity to, like, unearth these stories and tell them because they're important. They certainly are. Korsha, I ask everyone this question. I think in some ways you've answered it, but I do ask everyone, what does one woman kitchen mean to them? What does it mean to you? It means uh, one woman one one stop shop of like self sufficiency 
and support and the word like nurturing comes to mind, but like just the idea of uh, uh, relying on oneself. That's what it means to me. So beautiful. Korsha, this went so quickly. This and, did. Uh, <laughs> it really did. I know many people will want to get in touch with you and read your beautiful writing and maybe just to write to you and, and yeah, maybe absolutely. have you mentor them. <laughs> I can see a lot of women and men wanting that. How do people get in touch with you? Sure. Um, so the best way is through my website. It's just Korsha Wilson, K-O-R-S-H-A-W-I-L-S-O-N.com. Um, and then... Um, Twitter and Instagram is at Korsha Wilson. And I'm quicker to respond on Twitter, but I'll get to you on Instagram. <laughs> but through my website, there's also a contact form and all my stories are listed there too. I'm just so delighted to have had you in my kitchen. So thank you. And thank you to all of you for listening to Korsha and me today on One Woman Kitchen. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Thank you.